Narcolepsy After Dark, with terrifying hallucinations around sleep and sleep paralysis. The lines between sleeping and waking can be blurred with narcolepsy. These are underappreciated symptoms. So in this episode, we talk about these experiences and how to cope with them. Today, we have an amazing panel of guests. Chelsea Cataldi is a world traveler who enjoys creating things with her hands. She was diagnosed with type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy in 2010 while living in Japan. And now she's a rising voice as a speaker with Project Sleep. Kristen Beecher is a storyteller and news producer from Houston, Texas. She was diagnosed with type 2 narcolepsy without cataplexy at age 24, but lived with symptoms for many years before that. She's a graduate of Hampton University and a rising voices speaker. Connor Baker is a CDU nurse working at Rush Copley Medical Center in Aurora, Illinois. He was diagnosed with type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy at 20 years old, and now he shares his story as a rising voices speaker. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Narcolepsy Nerd Alert series invites listeners to dive deeper into specific topics relevant to living with narcolepsy. For more on this topic, please check out our corresponding toolkit, available for free on our website to download, print, and share. The link to the toolkit and other Narcolepsy Nerd Alert topics is in the show notes, or you can go to project-sleep.com. Hello. Welcome to our Narcolepsy Nerd Alert about sleep paralysis and hypnagogic hallucinations. We're so excited to be here today. We're going to start with just going over the basic definitions of these terms and then uh, getting into some, some example stories. So sleep paralysis is defined as the inability to move or speak for a few seconds or minutes when falling asleep or waking up. So this can include a sense of restricted breathing or crushing weight on the chest and is often accompanied by hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations. Such a long word. Well, what are they? They are visual, auditory, or tactile. So seeing things, hearing things, or feeling things, or other sensory hallucinations upon falling asleep or waking up can happen while feeling awake. And we'll definitely talk about that. Are we awake? Are we asleep? What's happening? It's often frightening and confusing, and common themes include intruders, incubus, unusual body experiences. So uh, this can also include, you know, floating or flying or out of body experiences as well. Had a few of those. And I guess I'll just mention here really quickly, you know, when we think about sleep paralysis and hypnagogic hallucinations and the difference between what someone might think of as a regular dream or nightmare. I know for me, like I had experienced plenty of dreams or, you know, scary dreams when I was growing up, but my first hypnagogic hallucination and sleep paralysis experience felt really different because it felt like it was happening in the very space where I was. 
And I think that's kind of a good distinguisher between talking about just dreams or nightmares versus these experiences, which is that they are often there exactly where you are, where you're sleeping or, or napping or, you know, struggling to stay awake. Um, and the things are in that space as opposed to going off in your dream to other places, flying above buildings or thinking you're at the mall or, you know, stuff like that. Those are where you are kind of like in a dream experience going other places. So before we get to some of the other history, though, I just want to, we have some incredible speakers. Uh, we were joking before we came on here that perhaps this is like the Oscars of hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis. Our guests are have very memorable experiences that have really stuck with us. So if they would be willing to share a little bit of those. Anyone want to go first? All right, I can, yeah, that'll work. I can go first. I've had multiple, you know, throughout the years that I've had a narcolepsy. And before I was diagnosed with it, I just thought they were really, really, really bad dreams. But um, one of the ones that sticks with me the most was right around the time I actually got my diagnosis. The currently my wife, but that back then we were, uh, we were still dating. Wasn't it like your first date? It was pretty close. It was, <laughs> I had just moved uh, um, back up to Illinois, so we were still trying to figure out the whole narcolepsy thing. Not really sure what was how it uh, how it had an impact on the relationship, kind of thing. So she got a <laughs> she got a full dose of what all the sides of it could be that night. That's for sure. She had actually dropped me off from a date. I think we had went to go see a movie or something that night, and you know I was pretty tired afterwards. I remember sitting down and for a lot of these like hallucinations for me, they, they tend to happen as I'm falling asleep rather than waking up. And they're always, I can always tell it's going to be rough because I get a, uh, almost like you go over a hill too fast. You almost like lose your stomach kind of feeling. So I sat down and this wasn't my first rodeo, but, uh, it was definitely a more memorable one. As I'm sitting there on the couch, I had the feeling of my, you know, my stomach leaving me. And I remember my head kind of feeling my head slump forward and not really being able to move, which initially, you know, startled me. But quickly afterwards, I started hearing um, feet running through the house, like bare feet on a wooden floor, which was weird because I was the only person in the house at the time pretty late at night, I'd say probably close to 10, 11 o'clock. Only one in the house, but I kept hearing this, these feet running across the floor. I, of course, tried to move, get up. Nothing was responding. Nothing was working. So I am convinced that there's someone in the house with me. Those feet quickly run into the kitchen. All this is happening behind my head. I can't see anything. I can only hear the feet running around. Feet quickly turn into things breaking and doors slamming in the kitchen. And I'm trying to call out, get up, grab my phone, just anything. Cause I can see, I can see everything going on around me. But like I said, I can't, can't move. Just stuck there on the couch. Well, I have a moment of peace as if I want to call it that because the, the banging and the, the breaking and the feet running around stop for a moment. What winds up happening after all the running around in the house the there's this voice of like this it's almost like a sounds like a little girl 
that starts laughing behind my head. Of course, I can't. I'm trying to turn to the side and look, trying to move, but I can't, you know, just I, I can't even call out for help at this point. And it feels like that goes on for forever, a, a long time. And the laughing ends up turning into a, I don't know if you, if anyone has seen any of the like horror movies where you've got the uh, like exorcism type of thing and they start talking in different language real fast and like a, almost like multiple voices at once kind of thing. Can't understand a word that it's saying, but that little girl is no longer laughing. She's doing that behind my head. And that goes on what feels like forever. So at some point during this, you know, thankfully, I, I don't remember doing this, but I was able to call my girlfriend at the time, um, my wife now, and she said that she heard me just muttering like, help, help, help over and over and over again. And she had managed to get all the way home, which was about half an hour away from where I was, and all the way back to me during this entire time. So that uh, that episode went on for at least an hour, thinking back on it now, where I had the mysterious little girl whispering and laughing and running around through the house and me stuck on the couch. So scary. Has she ever returned or? To that extreme extent? No. But the, you know, she, uh, the running around, the, the feet run around on the floor that, uh, that happens on a fairly regular basis. And it gives me a nice little flashback every time, <laughs> every time it happens. I feel like they're often, uh, why are they so noisy? Why are they always banging around in the kitchen? And <laughs> well, they got to let you know they're there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing that, Connor. Let's see, Kristen, did you want to share a little bit about your hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis experiences? Yes. This one isn't as scary, although I have had some like terrifying ones. But I think this was when I was just trying to get diagnosed. So I didn't have a diagnosis yet, but I was pretty convinced that I had narcolepsy. And I started a new job and I'm I'm a news producer, so I worked overnight which means that I came to work at like 10 o'clock at night and I got off at seven or eight in the morning. And most people would be very sleepy. I was trying to figure out if I had narcolepsy, I was extra sleepy at that time. And everyone in the office had already begun talking about the girl that's falling asleep all the time. I didn't know this yet, but they had been telling my managers like she sleeps when no one's here. And so I didn't realize that I was falling asleep. I knew that Sometimes I knew I was falling asleep. I didn't realize I was falling asleep as much as I did. And so I later learned that we had really high ceilings, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever been to an airport. One time I was like in LaGuardia and the ceilings were super high and there were birds flying around in LaGuardia. And I was seeing, I thought birds had gotten into the newsroom. And we're flying around. And I kept being like, y'all, like that bird, it's like three in the morning. I'm like, y'all don't see that bird like flying around here. And I'm sure they thought there's something wrong with this girl. She sleeps, she's new, she's seeing birds. And I was just convinced that I could see the bird, but nobody else could see the bird. And I didn't think that, I didn't think anything was wrong with me. I was just like, the bird is really fast and it's really good at flying. And I'm the only person who could see it. And so that went on for like a couple of days. Like I would see the bird flying by 
And I thought that it would like, it was getting in and getting out somehow. I later learned through Project Sleep because my sleep specialist did not explain what hallucinations were. That was a hallucination. And that's what helped me to realize that there are times when I don't realize that I'm falling asleep, that I am going to sleep in public. And as Julie was saying, like everything around me looks exactly the same. And so sometimes when I'm at work, something will happen and it'll be a normal day. Like I'll be writing, I think I'm writing a story. And then like, I don't like two knives will go across my this computer screen and they won't like hit me or anything. But, and then I'll be like, oh, there are not knives in here. Kristen, you are asleep. And that's how I realized that, oh, I should get up and like move around because I've been sleeping. And then when I like, especially if I'm starting to have sleep paralysis, in that moment, I'm trying to like wake myself up. I look at the screen and like I've written just gibberish. And that's how I realized that I have been asleep. But I would not, they're not always scary. The knives is scary, but they're not always scary. They're just abnormal, but only a little bit to the point where you're not really sure if it's real. And if I'm sitting straight up and at my desk, I would not know. If I, it's, it was not abnormal to me that a bird would get into a place with high ceilings. So I just thought that that was real, but clearly I was asleep. Yeah, the very real, very real nature of these is incredible. I like to describe to people that I just don't know if anything that happened around my sleep time was real or not. I pretty much assume it's not real because <laughs> that seems like the first best guess. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for sharing. Um, Chelsea, you want to share a little bit about your experience? Sure. Like you had said about not being a stranger to nightmares or crazy dreams or whatever, I've been plagued with like horrific nightmares for as long as I can remember. My mom said I was probably like two or three when they started. And so I've just dealt with them my whole life. And, you know, during emotional times, like if I was going through a breakup or was stressed out about school or something, they usually were worse. And that's true with every symptom of narcolepsy now I've learned that if I'm stressed or going through a hard time, it makes everything worse, including my hallucinations. But the first hallucinations I can actually remember uh, was when, right before I got diagnosed, living in Japan. But I... Why were you in Japan? Oh, so my husband was in the Air Force. He's retired now. He was active duty Air Force and we were stationed in Okinawa. And I loved it there. And I worked with a lot of local nationals and hung out with a lot of local nationals. Um, so I got a real good experience and sense of the culture, which I'm sure also like influenced the way I perceived these hallucinations because I literally thought that they were hauntings. Like <clears throat> I didn't think I was dreaming. I thought they were for sure real and I was being haunted by spirits or something, which because part of their culture is they believe that you're like surrounded, you know, by spirits and stuff, not necessarily hauntings all the time, but we were living on base, which also there was a lot of like battles during World War II in Okinawa and especially in certain areas of the base. So there's a lot of talk about different houses that were haunted. So I'm sure that had a play on it as well. But one night I was asleep and I, when I have a hallucination, I have them both falling asleep and waking up. I get them on both ends, unfortunately. And they're almost always coupled with sleep paralysis. So kind of like what Connor was um, explaining, like he couldn't move, he couldn't cry out, he couldn't do anything. That's what I experienced as well. And the first one, like it didn't seem horrific at first. <laughs> so I was laying down and, no, that's not true. It was, I, I thought I heard someone breaking in. 
to our our house and like I thought I heard glass breaking and someone like shuffling through things throwing things around yeah they're really noisy (laughs) always and then like coming up the stairs I could hear someone coming up the stairs to our bedroom and I'm thinking like oh my god oh my god someone's breaking into the house someone's breaking into the house like why is my husband not waking up and I can't move or like scream out or call out to him or anything and then all of a sudden like it got quiet and then and my husband and I were like like I was facing the wall he was facing me um as we were sleeping on our sides and that's how we fell asleep and I uh could feel him stroking my hair the back of my hair and like probably to calm me because he could sense my distress and I thought, oh my God, that is so sweet. That is so nice. And so I rolled over to like thank him and he was dead asleep facing the other direction. But I had physically felt somebody stroking my hair. And I thought like, this is unbelievable. So naturally it was a ghost, right? That was stroking my hair. So this stuff happened all the time. I would feel things like snap me and I would wake up. I could like, I could still feel the steam on my skin. I had instances, and some of them were okay and kind of like fun. Like my dad, when we were kids, used to pull our toe, our especially our big toe, we'd come up and pull on it to wake us up. Not hard, just like a little tug on our toe. And I had that, I've had that so many times. Like I can feel the sensation of tugging on my toe. And I'm thinking, what's my dad doing in my, in my bed in Japan because I'm an adult and I'm married far away, you know? And then you wake up, nope, not there. And yeah, and so I remember like telling my husband this and he's thinking she's losing her mind, you know, (laughs) what's going on. I'm telling people I work with and they're like, oh, your house is haunted. You should do this. You should do that to get rid of these spirits, you know? Yeah. And then when I finally went to a doctor to talk to a doctor, which I went because I started experiencing cataplexy, which is what led me to see him, you know, he's like, well, tell me about your sleep. And I'm like, you don't want to know about my sleep. And I thought for sure, if I told him, you know, he'd think I was crazy because I knew they were real experiences. Like I had real sensations with them. They were so different than dreams. And what did he say? Didn't he say something about? Oh, well, he said, well, he, the, so when I got diagnosed, so I ended up having to go off base to a Japanese doctor and a Japanese clinic, uh, not a military one to get the actual diagnosis because they didn't have the ability to do it on base. And actually, like, ironically, Um, narcolepsy is much more prevalent in Japanese than it is in Americans. Um, They carry the HLA um, at a higher percentage. So there's much more people like per capita in Japan with narcolepsy than in America. So I guess it wasn't a great place for it, you know, to get diagnosed. The doctor asked me, he said, he's this older, very traditional Japanese doctor. And he said, what did you think was happening to you? And I said, I thought my house was haunted. And he said, old way of thinking. (laughs) it's like okay (laughs) touche i'm curious from kristen and connor too did you guys think of these as like a medical problem that you address with a doctor or more of like a i don't know what's happening did you guys bring them up right away to doctors I never did. And I can I can remember an early one. If honestly now that I'm thinking about it, that actually shifts my like timetable of when I thought I may have like spelled narcolepsy. I was I was a kid. 
and I thought maybe like 14 this week because I can remember falling asleep in class but I was like 11 and I remember I was sleeping in my mom's room because the night before I had felt really sick in the night and so I slept in my mom's bed that night and then I remember a and I can draw it like I could it's so vivid which is why I believe it was my first one and now that I think back I'm like Kristen why do you think this was real it was like a a snake but it had like no eyes so it kind of looks like a worm and it, I was a kid so it was like a very childlike version of something and it came up and bit my hand and I, I woke up screaming and it still hurt like I can I can still feel it now but I could feel it then and th- it's so crazy that you said that I ever talked to a doctor because the very next night I had a seizure which is completely unrelated I was taking like medication as a child and so my mom was saying like three nights in a row, I slept in her room because the first night I didn't feel well. The second night I had the like bite thing and woke her up and she was so afraid. And then the third night I had a seizure and I know I definitely didn't tell the doctor like, oh, oh by the way, the night before a snake bit me in a dream. I just thought that I was having a bad dream. And I honestly thought that like the bad dream was like some sort of sign that I needed to stay in my mom's room. She would not have known that I had the seizure if I stayed in my own room the night before, but I, I was 11. So maybe that was my first hallucination. And I definitely didn't tell the doctor about it. Wow. We achieved my timetable a lot too. Actually, as I was preparing to do this um, nerd alert, I was thinking about the dreams I've had and different things I've experienced. And, and I'm like, you know what? I can recall having auditory hallucinations years before. So but I didn't have cataplexy or any of the other stuff. And it definitely got much worse, but it definitely shifted my timetable too. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I, to be honest, the certain things that happen pretty regularly with me still, like the, call him the shadow man, this some someone that I see out of the corner of my eye or, you know, down at the end of a hallway, whenever I'm just like, at the hospital, it's really freaky. Um, Cause I, <laughs> I work nights. So I always, my heart jumps a little bit because I'm thinking someone's out of the room that shouldn't be moving around. <laughs> but, um, the shadow man, I, I'd say I'd probably had been seeing since I was like eight years old. Yeah, that's, yeah, I was right around eight years old. It was probably the first time. But, you know, like like everyone else was saying, it's not. I didn't necessarily have all the other symptoms with it. I just kind of attribute it to really bad dreams. And then uh, when they got really bad to where like, I knew that I, I knew that I was awake. Like I, I, there was, it wasn't a, oh, I'm asleep and I'm dreaming or like I could pass it off as a dream. I was a hundred percent certain that I was awake when these things were happening. I was living in Louisiana and uh, I'm a little, I wouldn't say superstitious, but uh, is thinking like some voodoo stuff was going on <laughs> down there. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to sound uh crazy to anybody <laughs> but uh when they followed me back up here to Illinois I kind of had an idea that like oh I you know I'm kind of meeting all the you know did, did the good old WebMD self-diagnosis thing and uh I kind of was like oh I might have narcolepsy and that's when I started like reading about the the sleep paralysis and the hypnagogic hallucination so I didn't want I, I still don't want to talk you know, being a being a nurse, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it's fine to talk about these things, but even still, like to this day, it's like not something that like I would bring up to the doctor just because it's 
know, you're scared of what someone might think kind of thing. But, you know, like, like Chelsea said, that was an old way of thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think there are doctors who just, who aren't familiar with it. And, and if we don't necessarily use the correct terminology or describe it just right, that they would think that, you know, we're having hallucinations that don't have anything to do with the change in wakefulness and that we're just having an actual hallucination because they seem like that, you know, and the change in wakefulness is, um, God, it's so slight. It's so hard to describe and get a grasp of it because, I mean, when I, when I lived in New York, uh, I was having, I had gone through a bad breakup and I was having horrific nightmares. They were really impacting my life. Like I, there were times where I would call into work and into work because I had to go into work late because I had a night of nightmares and I was, I couldn't, I couldn't function. Like, you mean like the it, hypnagogic hallucinations or nightmares? They, weren't, they were not hallucinations. They were nightmares. They mm-hmm. were like just horrific nightmares. Usually they involved me being sacrificed, like literally burned at the stake. And I mean, really horrible, like violent, just horrific, like dreams, nightmares. And I would wake up and I would just be like, I would, I felt like I lived through them, but not like I didn't have any physical sensations or sounds or anything like that, but I was just exhausted, you know? And, um, and I was shaken from them. So I started seeing a, I like, I looked it up and I wanted to specifically see a Jungian psychoanalyst who did dream therapy. (laughs) And I don't even know what they would call that now because terminology changes all the time. But I found this woman who, but she specialized in that. And I saw her and went to her for, I mean, a couple of years, probably year and a half or so. And she helped me tremendously. And in the beginning, she suggested, because I liked to paint and create things, she suggested that I started painting these horrific images in my dreams. Yeah. So, yeah. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Yeah. So I did. So, yeah. Do you want me to stop there and we can talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that in a little bit. So just a little bit of history, too, because, you know, I think for each of us that has experienced something like this, you know, it feels like so out there, but it's, but people have been experiencing hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis for a very long time. It's been described for at least 2000 years and across many different cultures. And it's not just people with narcolepsy that experience this as well. Different studies will say different numbers from what I could tell somewhere between 8% to 30% of the general population has experienced things like this at some point in their life. For people with narcolepsy, it's just much more consistent that we experience these. But even the word nightmare that we now think of is kind of like what Chelsea was describing. Uh, It's from the old English word mare, I guess, a malviolent figure who lies upon and immobilizes or suffocates sleepers. So really even that term first was really describing a hypnagogic uh, uh, sleep paralysis, you know, kind of like that feeling like someone's on your chest Uh, and that, uh, you know, there's been many interpretations. We love as humans to interpret and find meaning from things. And so there's certainly, you know, tons of dream interpretation throughout time, but also for these specific experiences, you know, thought of as supernatural causes, witches, old hags, ghosts, demons, vampires, aliens. We have a great article on Project Sleep's website that goes through some of these different examples and how they can be hypnagogic hallucinations. So 
I know my first hallucination is a man coming into my room and I remember him reaching out towards my neck, but I don't remember, I don't think he was like crushing on my neck. I just felt like he was about to strangle me. Um, but have, have you guys had that sensation of like not being able to breathe or that something's on your chest? Absolutely. A lot, actually. And I had started having that in my like mid teens. And I had that a lot after when I was going through a stressful period in high school and I had it and I, yeah, it felt, it felt like there was this like darkness and weight on top of me that was so heavy and it was super hard to breathe and I couldn't scream out. I couldn't do anything. For me, there was a, I mean, this doesn't happen as much anymore, thankfully, but uh, the times whenever I have those there was a point in time where it was nightly and it was so bad that me and my wife, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to share a room together because uh, I don't have the flight instinct where I wake up, you know, just scared or scream or anything like that. I typically lash out whenever I have the, where someone's holding me down or, you know, trapping me kind of thing, I would wake up and I'd wake up swinging or, <laughs> We we laugh about it now. It's not really funny, but we laugh we laugh about it now. But back when I was, it was more. It was closer to whenever I was. I used to do uh, MMA and boxing and stuff, and it was closer to whenever I had just stopped. There were times where I'd come out of one of those and I'd immediately put my wife in a submission hold, just out just out of pure instinct reflex because of how how realistic being restrained felt i i i was 100% for sure that i was being attacked to the point where like just like i said just instinct took over whenever i would come out of it wow and isn't your wife also wasn't she also a fighter though she had some fight in her yeah she's uh <laughs> she's uh she's hit bit um <laughs> yeah she's she's gotten her punches into uh <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, she, uh, she's, yeah, she's, uh, she's made sure I snapped out of it pretty quick. Oh, good. So strategies for dealing with this. I think it's always really interesting <laughs> to try to think about how can we make them better? You know, it's tough and, um, you know, there are no treatments that are specifically like FDA approved to improve these. I'd say that that some treatments might improve them, but they're certainly not FDA approved and indicated for reducing these things. So in general, some strategies could be, you know, anxiety management, sleep routine, keeping a regular schedule, looking for patterns and emotional preparedness, environmental triggers, even pets' behaviors. So I know for myself and many people talk about like getting their sense of reality from a pet <laughs> and realizing what could be happening or not happening based on that and looking for creative outlets. One strategy that I've figured out, I guess it would be kind of like a emotional preparedness, is that I've realized that if I'm questioning whether I'm awake or not, like, is this really happening? If I can think that in my head as I'm having one of these, then I try to remember that that means it's probably not happening because once I actually am awake fully, 
I'm always like, oh, this is reality. Like, I don't really like once I'm really awake, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is awake. When I'm awake, awake, it's not a question about whether I'm awake. And so I think sometimes when I'm able to realize I'm questioning whether I'm awake, I probably am not. Does that, I have a question. Does that work for you? Sometimes a little bit. That's awesome. I need to get there. I, I, I feel the same way. Like if I am questioning whether this is reality or not, a hundred percent, it's not reality. Like I never question if this is reality when I'm awake and alert, but for whatever reason, I don't have the wherewithal to realize that if I'm questioning it, it's a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, and even the, the, the transition, we talked a little bit about that, but that transition between a hallucination and then being in your environment, I had like a mini jar of mace and, you know, after one hypnagogic hallucination living in an apartment, I got, I started walking around the apartment with the mace looking for the burglar and like 10 or 15 minutes go by before, and I'm walking around, you know, in reality, looking for the burglar and then remembering I've been diagnosed with narcolepsy now at that point for like eight years. Like, oh, the intruder. Oh, geez. Wow. The, probably that thing that happens to me all the time. But how do I end up with the mace walking around the apartment for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before remembering that like, duh, it wasn't real. So it certainly, you know, I don't know if I really have any exact solution. How about you guys? Do you have any strategies for coping with these? I don't know if it's a coping strategy or if it's just, I know that if I'm really tired or exhausted, I'm going to have more hallucinations. I'm going to be more prone to having sleep paralysis. So like if it's Wednesday and I've had this every night this week, I'm like, okay, I need to do something different. Even if I'm going to sleep on my normal time, I need to maybe try to get some more sleep and try not to look at my phone, try to see what is like, emotionally triggering me if I'm like super stressed about something because it's not going to get any better it's only going to get worse and then knowing that I have the chance of having sleep paralysis which scares me so much I will not sleep which will then make me more tired so it's kind of a coping strategy that happens after the fact I don't have a way to like stop them but I feel like I have a way to help slow them down is to just try to be as rested as possible if I'm noticing that like they're happening every night. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. I have felt the same way. And I know that once I start having them, I'm more likely to have more of them. And then it's terrifying. And so you don't want to sleep. And being terrified and not sleeping actually increases the likelihood of it happening more. And yeah, it's it's a vicious cycle. I know for me, the... uh for me, it's stuff that it's, it's kind of funny, but it's stuff that, you know, they tell everybody, Oh, do X, Y, and Z to, you know, sleep better. Don't look at your phone for a couple hours, turn the TV off like an hour or two before bed. Don't make sure you don't eat before for a couple hours before you go to sleep. Just doing like actually being on top of those things tend to help some like somewhat. It's not necessarily a guarantee, but it, it does help somewhat, at least for me. As for when they happen, though, like coping strategies, we found out that <laughs> we actually found this out through, through a, a smart aleck uh, comment that I made to my wife one night whenever I was coming out of one of the one of them. I was I was, you know, I woke up screaming and 
it was a bad, bad moment. And um, I was still half asleep. I had taken Zyrum to help me, you know, sleep that night. And uh, it was still kind of working. I don't tend to have a filter when that's working. And I wake up with that in my system. She asked me, um, she's like, well, what can I do? Can I help you? <laughs> I said, what are you going to do? You're, you get scared of everything. <laughs> so she, uh, she's like, well, do you want me to get one of the dogs? I was like, yeah, get Bella. I know Bella will actually protect me. Bella's my little 50, 50 pound like pit mix. And so whenever, that's kind of the go-to now is whenever I wake up from an episode, a lot of the times it's kind of a cycle where I, I'll have one, I'll come back to for moments and then I'll fall back into it. And just happens over and over and over again. It can happen for hours. But for some reason, whenever we get my little 50 pound pit in the bed with us, she kind of just like centers me, I guess, like grounds me to reality. Thankfully, the dog entertains, you know, entertains my <laughs> my momentary uh, lapse of sanity. <laughs> and um, whenever whenever you feel the need to sleep, for me especially, if I if I fight it, I'm guaranteed. It's it's almost like a, a for sure. I'm gonna have an episode if I try and fight the exhaustion in the sleep. I have a little tiny dog, and she sleeps next to me. And um, we're almost always touching (laughs) against me in some way, or I have my hand on her. And if I have a hallucination, she would be barking her cool head off if someone was breaking into my house or was in the room. And knowing that she's not responding to anything is, is helpful and calms me enough to where either I can fall back asleep or wake up. And it has actually helped stop the loops of it. That's what I call them, just like Connor, to where it's like you just get stuck in this endless cycle of of hallucinations, sleep kind of awake, hallucinations, sleep kind of awake, and it can last. Yeah, it can last for hours. Otherwise, I also would say I do avoid uh, scary movies and stuff. I, I feel like I don't need any more material for my hallucinations than it already has. <laughs> so. That's something I do as well. So Chelsea, you did mention a little bit about your art. And do you want to share a little bit more? So the uh, therapist I saw in New York, she encouraged me to paint the scary things for my dreams. And um, I did that for a while and it helped some. And then she actually taught me lucid dreaming techniques, which helped tremendously. So I stopped painting them and just used the lucid dreaming techniques. but when I started having the hallucinations and the sleep paralysis, I guess because my level of sleep isn't deep enough to do lucid dreaming, I can't, I can't control those at all. I was back at this point where I had no mechanism of, or resource to use. And so I started painting the hallucinations. I went back to what I had done before and it actually really started to help. Just by using it in a creative way, I take ownership of it and I can manipulate it into the way I want to. And really it's mine to own. They're my hallucinations. They're coming from my brain to begin with. So it's really just owning what I already own and saying like, "Mm, you're not, I'm not going to, I'm going to let you be a little less scary. And in doing this, it made them not nearly as scary. And actually they became a lot more tactile, I think, than visual. 
So um, sometimes I will like write a story about it or just talk about it. Like the bugs, I, for whatever reason, can't seem to draw the bugs. So I will write like little short stories or something or even horrible poetry about uh, like bugs. I've had many hallucinations that are kind of like the um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where you're just like literally like covered with insects crawling all over you. So I'll write something about that and just using it in some kind of creative outlet has seemed to help me. Yeah. You know, we got to look for the silver linings as we say, and as best we can doesn't make these things go away, but all the creativity that comes from this is incredible. So we do have some poetry to share as well from Elizabeth Wilson. Uh, Elizabeth Wilson was diagnosed with narcolepsy type one when she was 38 years old. And she's also a graduate of the rising voices program and an award-winning poet. And she just actually published her first book called Window Pains. And she has actually recorded a quick video of her reading her poem for us that we're really excited to share today. Nightfall. I'm electric. A current ripples from my crown to my toes. The ossicles in my ears hum and whir. I'm restrained by a witch stronger than gravity. Her incantations press against my chest, crush my breath. This is a dream, I tell myself, a nightmare for the waking. If I can just move my pinky finger, I'll break her spell. I'll wake up. Night will fall around me. So powerful. That just gave me chills. Well, if you guys can't get enough of this topic, I recommend this book, The Terror That Comes in the Night. Uh, it's a really interesting book about looking at people's experiences in uh, New Finland, in Canada uh, in particular. And it's just, and he does go through and describe a lot of different history of a lot of different cultures. And it was so validating to so many of my hypnagogic uh, hallucination experience. And it brought more back to me, you know, that I'd forgotten about. So reading this book, I think I just looked at it again. I hadn't looked at it in years and all the notes I'd put in the sides. I think I probably read this before I wrote my own book and a lot of the hallucinations that I end up including, I felt very validated by hearing other people's very similar experiences of from this book. So definitely recommend that if you want to get more into this topic. And uh, we do have this great article on our website about spooky nighttime visitors, paranormal or parasomnias by Rebecca Fuoco. So check that out as well. Just in closing, just remind everyone that there are great organizations that have great resources, including Project Sleep, but also in America, the Hypersomnia Foundation, Narcolepsy Network, and Wake Up Narcolepsy have various great, great, great resources. And there are also international organizations around the world. We have a list of those on our World Narcolepsy Day page. And, you know, really interesting how different cultures interpret hypnagogic hallucinations and sleep paralysis as well. Chelsea talked about Japan, but, you know, some of our different speakers from different countries have talked about, you know, how things are interpreted in their countries. So a really interesting discussion there, too. And just a quick reminder that we will have a toolkit coming out uh, from this discussion. So with that, I just want to thank everyone for, for tuning in today. 
And a huge thanks to our special guest today for sharing with such vulnerability and honesty. I know this topic is, you know, it can be hard to talk about and it's hard to experience. So your willingness to come here and share just means so much because, you know, maybe we can't always make them go away, but there is a lot of power in knowing that we're not alone. Cheesy, I know, but so true. All right. Thanks, everybody. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.